that song would be truth, that it is well with our soul because we know where we stand with you. We know that our sins are nailed to the cross. We know that you are for us and with us and love us. Father, would you open our eyes to see this um, just a little bit more this morning? Uh, open our ears to hear your word and our hearts to understand it. Fill us with the Spirit that we may apply these things to our hearts and minds. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so today we are looking at the Imitation app. So we are looking at the different life apps and the scriptures of the Philippians. And so today we're looking at how we are called to imitate others and how others are called to actually imitate us as well. Now, I recognize that imitation can seem like a dirty word sometimes. All right, you think of imitation crab, which here in Maryland, that is, that is a dirty word. We are not into that. <laughs> but, but, as much as imitation may seem kind of insincere or, or fake or wrong, we have to recognize that we are at heart imitators. So from a very young age, we learn how to talk by parenting, or sorry, by parroting our parents, by imitating their speech. As kind of little kids, we, we imitate our siblings, learn to play their games, learn to play along with them, maybe learn some of their not-so-good habits. With our parents, we, we push plastic lawnmowers next to our dad as he cuts the grass, or play with plastic kitchen sets next to our mother's. That's actually the basis by which we, we learn and mature is by imitation of others. And uh, actually, our brains are actually made for that. So there's parts of the brain that are called mirror neurons. So that when we watch someone do something, our brain actually fires and actually does the action internally in our brains alongside of them. So when you watch a, a baseball game, you're actually going through the motions. So you, you are pitching the ball as they pitch the ball. You are swinging the bat as they swing the bat. Your brain is actually a pro ball player, surprisingly. You may think you're just being lazy, but, but your brain is actually working pretty hard. You get better at baseball just by watching, yeah, oddly enough. So we are actually created to be imitators. And that's actually fundamental to what humanity is supposed to be. We are supposed to be imitators of God. That's what the image of God is all about. We are to reflect everything that he is. We are to love the things he loves and hate the things that he hates. We're supposed to have authority and power that God has. We're supposed to have his glory and his beauty. That is what it means to be made in the image of God, to be imitators of him. And so this past few weeks, we've been talking kind of more explicitly about how we are called to embody and imitate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are to humbly and obediently sacrifice ourselves for the sake of Christ, just as Christ did for us. But today we're actually taking that um, a little bit more simply by talking about how we are supposed to imitate other believers. Paul here talks about how he calls the Philippian church to imitate him. That he is supposed to be a flesh and blood person in the, their midst, and he calls them to imitate him. Which is nice, because when you hear the call to imitate Christ, that can seem a little bit abstract. And it naturally kind of shoots up a bunch of flares like, oh no, I, 
natural defense is. Well, Jesus is God, right? Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is perfect. I probably don't have to be really like Jesus. And so we're given a, a clearer picture. The Philippians church is called to be like Paul and to imitate him. Which is helpful for us because we are, we are a simple people. We are a tangible people. And that's not bad. That's just what humanity is. And so we're given this really clear picture to be like Paul. But the problem is that as natural imitators, we kind of do this reflexively. And if we're not imitating someone deliberately, we're going to imitate other people and other things, and we're going to naturally imitate the world. And that's where Paul is calling the Philippian church to imitate those who are pillars of the faith and not the world around them. So we're going to see how we have that choice to imitate, and we're going to see why we should imitate those who are imitating Christ. All right? So let's look at uh, something, something. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. Good to go. This is Philippians 3, 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. All right. So, jump into verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, we can easily pass over that verse and just be like, okay, so I'm supposed to be good like Paul. But let's, let's think about and imagine how this is heard by the Philippian church. So they know Paul. Paul is actually the father of their church. The apostle. He is a big deal in their eyes. He is the one sent from God to lead them. And they're sitting together on a dirt floor in this house church and together they are reading this letter that he has sent them. And they have heard of Paul. They have heard of his trials and his imprisonment. In Corinthians it says this, Paul, this is Paul's words describing what he's been through. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, 
in cold and exposure. That is the life of Paul. And here he writes to them, still persevering. And he writes to them, telling about how he is in prison. And he's not just kind of like surviving in prison. He's actually thriving in prison. He's doing great. He's rejoicing in the midst of prison. And he's still preaching the gospel there. He's preaching the gospel to the guards, yes, but also to governors, to the emperor. He's doing a great job. And they hear of his faithful laborers, those people who work alongside of him. In chapter 3, it talks about how Paul calls Timothy the one who, even though everyone else seeks after their own gain, Timothy alone only considers the interests of Christ. That is, that is quite a compliment. We have Epaphroditus. It says that he has striven for the gospel to the point that he almost died. But for the sake of the gospel reaching the people, he was willing to endure that. And so you can imagine the Philippian church full of elation and gratitude, thinking about how God has sent them such amazing leaders, such heroes of the faith, to have men such as these to lead them. But then Paul says in, in this verse, something first, a little, a little surprising, he calls, them, he calls them brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Now after, after hearing about how righteous and faithful Paul is, you kind of hope that, oh, why don't you just call us little children? Right? He sometimes calls the church that. How about you be the father and we'll be the little children? But no, they're brothers and sisters equal with Paul. And then he says something that is even more unsettling. He calls them, join in imitating me. Now, if you're a member of the Philippian church, your smile and your, your warm fuzzies have just gone away. Because ah, Paul is an apostle. And we don't really want to be like him. That's a big call to imitate Paul himself. Because I'm sure they saw him as a kind of another class of Christian. And he was like kind of up here. He was an apostle. He's better than us. He, he's the evangelist. And he gets all the benefits of being an evangelist. He's the one who gets persecuted and imprisoned and beaten. That's his job. But we're kind of here. We're, we're just kind of the rank and file. We just hang out and kind of receive everything that Paul gives us. But that's not our calling. He can be kind of the crazy Christian one and we'll be the normal Christians. Just hanging out in our church doing our thing. That's our job, right? And that's where Paul says, no. And this isn't a fluke. He actually says this a lot. In Corinthians, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Another place, I imita I, uh, sorry, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Thessalonians, it says, you know that you ought to imitate us. He says to Timothy, be an example for others to imitate. This is not a fluke. This is, Paul's very mission is to, to live out a life that others are supposed to follow him into. We everyday Christians are the brothers of Paul and are to be like Paul. Mm -hmm. And how, how does Paul walk? What does his life look like? We've talked about it over the past weeks. He has an undying commitment to Christ, even through suffering and death. 
He has relentless joy that cannot be taken away, even in the midst of suffering. He has radical humility and obedience. He's passionate about abandoning everything, abandoning every achievement, so that he could have Christ. And finally, he has unendingly strives to take hold of the salvation that has been given to him. That is the life of Paul. And so, well, we can often make excuses. I don't want to be like Jesus. Right? Or just, Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. You're supposed to die for us. I'm not really supposed to do that. And that's where it's almost more difficult to say, be like Paul. Because Paul is just a man. He has the same spirit we have. He's a brother. He is not our Savior. The difference between Paul is that Paul gets it. Paul understands what he's been given and the life that, that he is to live out. And this is not just for the Philippian church. They are to live the radical life of, of Paul, and we too are supposed to live a radical life of faith like Paul does. All right, so what might it look like to imitate Paul in your life? Now, it could look like anything on that list. I think the one that is probably the most obvious, but the one that we deny most adamantly, is that we are called to be evangelists like Paul is. Now, that is difficult. We are really bad at that. Because we think that, oh, like, there's certain people who are evangelists, people like Paul, who are specially gifted. But the point isn't that they are specially gifted and you are not. It's that they're specially gifted so you could imitate them. So you walk in their shoes so that you follow them and preach the gospel of Jesus. Because, okay, in the first century, the gospel spread like wildfire. And it wasn't because Paul just went around preaching the gospel. It was because everyday people went and, and spoke the gospel to the people that they knew. You have a woman like the woman at the well. Who Jesus has one conversation with her, and she runs back to the town and tells the whole town. That, that's the mission. Or you have people who are exiled from their country, and they're scattered throughout all of the region. And as they go, they tell their neighbors. They tell their friends. They talk about Jesus at the well. They, they talk to the men in the field working with them. That is how the gospel spread. It wasn't just Paul telling each and every believer. That's not how a movement happens. And so that is, that is our calling in the church. To spread the gospel of Jesus Christ who graciously loved people and died for them. Who loved us and died for us. That is one way we are called to be like Paul. To be evangelists. And if we're going to do that, we're going to have to embody a, a second trait of Paul. We're going to have to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, in our culture, it usually sounds like, well, maybe that's true of Paul, but that doesn't seem really true of now and these days. I don't even know how I would suffer for Christ. It's kind of antiquated, maybe. If you're thinking that, you're, you're deceiving yourself. Our culture is all too happy to persecute us. The thing is that we're pretty crafty about avoiding it, right? We, we, 
we have situated ourselves so that we would never put our place in the place that we could get persecuted because we've kind of eliminated that option. So that when, when at our jobs, our bosses say, don't preach the gospel, we don't preach the gospel. When people are mean to us, when we talk about Christ, we stop preaching the gospel. That's kind of our natural, like, oh, they're just not interested. No, that's, that's persecution for, for righteousness' sake. So that when the apostles went before the high council, and the high council said, no, you're not allowed to preach the gospel anymore, what did they say? Do you remember what they say? We must obey God rather than men. That is what we're called to. So, I understand this. I, I'm, I'm not ignorant. Um, you could get fired for preaching the gospel at work. People could hate you for being that person that's always talking about Jesus. That is a reality. And honestly, nothing would make me happier than to hear that one of you lost your job for preaching the gospel. <laughs> that would be the most exciting thing. Because that would mean like, wow, they're like actually putting obedience to Christ above anything else. And I hope that as a body, we would be so excited and would honor that person Amen. and rejoice that they would suffer for Christ and that they wouldn't be alone in it. Like that is why we have deacons. We have deacons so that when people are obedient and suffer for it, we come alongside and pick them up. We would deliver food to them and pay their power bill and make sure that they get on their feet. I think that would be so exciting. That would be great. Because that, that is what, what it would look like to really be a Christian. I'm serious. I'm really, really serious here. Okay. All right. So just keep that in mind. Uh, to suffer for the sake of Christ. We can still do that. We just, we just don't like to. And we don't. And we think that, that that would actually be disobedient. But it, it would be to embody what it is like in the first century. What Jesus and Paul suffered. All right. But that, that's kind of that's really big. Um, there's simpler ways to, to live out this commandment, right? Um, the most obvious way is to find someone to imitate. Find a Christian to imitate. Now, that could be Paul. But Paul is not the only faithful Christian in the history of Christianity. This could be maybe a reformer, right? He's someone like Luther or Calvin, if you're the intellectual historical type. Uh, it could be someone kind of more modern. Someone like C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon. Just getting to know them through their writing. This could be a, a preacher. R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller. Recommend Tim Keller, he's good. Um... But I think we can do better than that. We want real live people. Real live people we can actually live and talk with. We can observe living out their daily lives. So, my challenge to you would be to, to find someone to imitate. Find someone that you can live life with and just observe. When you're with them, notice what their motives are. Kind of, why do they do what they do? What have they learned? How does their life 
depict kind of an understanding of who Christ is. And learning that firsthand. That is what it looks like to, to imitate other believers. And those relationships, those aren't natural relationships typically. They can happen really naturally, but there's usually something you have to pursue. So that might look like asking someone to, to go to coffee, to go for a walk, to pray together, shooting them an email, asking them a question that you have about theology or something else, just a life struggle. Think about what that might look like. I know that would be probably a big, spe- uh, big step and probably kind of scary, but that is what we're called to do. And that, that has two sides to it, right? It's not just looking for someone that you want to imitate. It's also looking to who you need to be an example to and being an example that you need to be. Because all of life is not just lived for you. It's actually lived for the rest of the community. And we need to be doing that, being an example and calling others. Now for kids, kids, kids always wonder, kids. <laughs> so kids are like, well, I'm not supposed to be an example to anyone. And that's where that's, that's not completely true. You're probably most an example to your siblings to embody the just love and obedience and kindness to them. No one, no one is just kind of receiving. Everyone is giving. Everyone is loving. All right, so that is uh, kind of a very simple application of this. To always be aware who you are imitating and who is imitating you and being deliberate about those relationships. We are to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example of other godly believers. All right, so we keep our eyes fixed on them. And we keep our eyes fixed on them because our eyes are tempted to stray. And if we're not following a true godly imitation, a true godly example, we're probably going to be imitating the world. That is what we naturally do. And we can't really help it. It's just the world comes around us and we naturally imitate them. And the problem is that when we imitate the world, we get into really dangerous places. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears... Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now these enemies of the cross were probably people who professed Jesus. Who decided to follow Jesus, but never really understood, and so they fell away. We think of the parable of the sower. Like the seed sown among the thorns, they hear the word, but the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things, come in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. They're choked out by the desires of the world and never come to true faith. That's the, the reality of following the world. We often think that like, oh, we might just be distracted. We might be less fruitful than we could be. But there are real consequences and real dangers here. Look at verse 19. This is a description of those who are following the world. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So when Paul talks about the world and following the world, he immediately goes to a forecast of where they will stand in the end. That the world without Christ 
Their end is destruction for those who decide to be enemies of the cross. And then he goes on to describe what those people look like. What does it look like to be of the world and following the world? First of all, their God is their belly. This is when we allow our desires to be the thing that we worship. To sacrifice everything to get what we want. Now that, that's always where the world leans. Towards getting what they want. And that is its, its highest end. If you're given two options of doing what is right or doing what is comfortable and fun and better, better, more enjoyable, they tend to pick the more comfortable thing. And the thing is that we, we kind of can't blame them for that. So think, if, if the only reason you're here is because of random chance, that there's no reason to live, and your end is destruction. Atheists believe that. They know that their end is destruction if there's nothing beyond this world. So why would you not live for comfort and for pleasure? If that is really what you think the world is, then that's how you're going to live. All right. So the, the world also finds glory in their shame. Glory in their shame. They revel in the things that actually God reveals to be shameful, to be dishonorable. And that's not really that surprising either. If you don't know what is honorable and what is shameful, you're just naturally going to move, move out and you have to forge your own path without God's help, without God's guidance. And you're going to confuse those things. Maybe sometimes they'll find glory, but oftentimes they'll think that the shameful thing is glorious. And only after they have followed the world they'll realize that they, they feel terrible and they're broken and they're, they feel miserable. They have exchanged glory for shame. All right. Finally, they set their mind on earthly things. They set their mind on earthly things. That makes sense too. If there is no heaven, what else do you set your mind on? If life is only life under this sun... If there is no hell below us, if above us there is only sky, then why would you set your mind on, earthly, on anything but earthly things? That all is all there is. Alright, so when we talk about the world, we can be kind of superior and think that we're better than them. But just a few reminders. We were lost in our sin. Everyone who knows Christ was, was once lost in your sin. And did not know God or Christ. Did not believe in him. And thought that the world was this way. It's only because God opened your eyes. And allowed you to hear. That you know that this is not the case. Amen. We did not make ourselves unblind. We did not undeafen our ears. That is the work of God. He has healed us. And so we do not look down on the world. If we're going to look down on anyone, we ought to look down on ourselves for still acting this way, even though we know what the truth is. For acting like the world when we know better. Amen. And so we, we ought to be humble, not superior to the world. Because when we worship our desires, we, we treat the world like a world of kind of just the here and now. That there is nothing after this life. 
There is no heaven. There is no hell. All that matters is the here and now. When we know that that is not the case, we kind of claim, oh, eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But tomorrow we don't die. There is salvation. It's eternal life afterwards. We need to live like that's true. Now, and I, I see that in our church we can be kind of over-eager, worship, over-eager worshipers of desire. That we can be gluttonous drunkards who are, who are prone to, to take up the pleasures of the world. But honestly, that is not my biggest concern. I don't think that's the most dangerous thing that our church tends to fall into. I think the more dangerous thing is that we have our minds set on the world. And many of you are kind of consumed with the state of the world that is immediately before you. So that you kind of end up whipped back and forth by every news story, every Fox News special update, every presidential campaign, that those things we just whip back and forth. Our emotions go up and down. We have, we have worldly grief and prideful anger, indignant disgust, that the world is not as we think it should be. And so for, for some of you, church is the news. And when you go to the news, it's a worship service. And you're imitating those experts as they tell you prophecy. Prophecy about the world, prophecy of what your life is going to be. And you evangelize members and non-members of your political party or your social agenda. Because that is salvation to you. You memorize the scripture of your party platforms. And the thing is, we are not called to imitate the world in that way. This is not our world. This, This country... The prophecies about it could be true. They could be true. America could fall. Things could go really bad. But the kingdom of God is going to stand. And so what if we spent the same amount of time focused on the prophecies of Christ and his kingdom? Or evangelized not the fear of what's going to happen next, but the confidence we have in Christ's victory. That would truly change how we, how we see this world. We would not be people of, of fear or anxiety or disappointment. We'd be people of hope. And that would be infectious. A way of imitating Christ in this world. Because, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not citizens of this world. And that brings us to our final point. We have the ability to imitate Paul and imitate Christian people to choose not to imitate the world because we have greater hopes. We have a greater end in sight. We have a greater God. We have greater glory and a greater love. All right, so first of all, our end. Our end is not destruction. Our end is heaven. And we are citizens of that kingdom even now. So when we go out into the world, we aren't members of the world in the same way. We're actually ambassadors and representatives of the heavenly kingdom. 
So we don't rise and fall with this nation. We don't rise and fall with the world around us. We're actually caught up in the stability of the kingdom of Christ. And our goal is not to save this kingdom. Our goal is actually to manifest all of the things of the heavenly kingdom. The stability and peace and beauty of the heavenly kingdom. The joy and comfort of knowing this heavenly kingdom. That's what it means to be citizens of heaven. To be a different kind of people. And to not lose hope when the world is dark. Because the world is going to be dark. The world is supposed to be dark. It's fallen. Yet the light of the gospel and the kingdom of God, that is supposed to be bright. And that is the light that we carry on with us. All right, not only that, but we have a different God and Lord. Our God is not our belly. Verse 20. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All right, so we know that our Lord, our God, is not our belly. It is a person, the true Lord, who is ruling in heaven and who has the power to subject all things to himself. But look back at the verse. What does he use that power to do? He uses that power to transform us. Not to dominate us, not to subjugate us. He actually uses it to bring us out of our lowly bodies and transform us into glorious people. Into the glorious image of God. Into beautiful and powerful people. He actually gives that power to us. And as that Lord, he gives us a greater glory. A glory that isn't getting confused with shame. A glory that can't be lost. This is a glory of, of being as Christ is. So he came and humbled himself, came to glory, and then he brings us and wraps us into that glory. That we made people who, who are beautiful and glorious and powerful and free. Free from the, the God of the belly that just makes us kind of addicted and slaves to ourselves. That is the, the beauty of what Christ is doing. And finally, finally, he gives us a new love. And he unites us as beloved brothers and sisters. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, notice what Paul calls these men and women that he ministers to. What does he call them? He calls them those he longs for. Those he loves. My joy and my crown, my beloved. Because the temptation is always going to be that if you're imitating someone else, they're just going to subjugate you. They're going to oppress you. Maybe they're going to make you into something that you're not. And the world often does that. When they call you to be a disciple, they're oftentimes seeking just to use you or to take from you. And that's where... This kind of love and value that Paul shows, that changes everything. So that he disciples and he calls people to imitate him that he might serve and love them. It's not about him. 
It's about actually seeing those people, the Philippian church, as his joy and his crown. He loves them and he loves to serve them. When you find someone to imitate who treats you like that, who loves you even when you're messed up, when you're immature, when you're broken, that's when you found kind of a true Christ-like mentor. Someone who will extend grace to you. All right, and where did, where did Paul learn to love and value people that he served like that? From Christ himself. You don't have anything, you can't give away anything that you haven't first received. And Paul, in the gospel, came to know that Jesus Christ saw him as his, as his beloved. That Paul is Christ, his joy and his crown. The one that he longs to be with, the one that he loves. And if you are found in Christ, you believe in Jesus Christ, you are called his beloved. You are the beloved of Christ. And you have to own that. Can you own that? Do you think that you are the beloved of Christ? It's true. And it's only once you are the beloved of Christ, the crown of Christ, the joy of Christ, that you're going to be able to, to imitate Paul and to live this kind of life. Jesus calls us his prized possession. We're the, the pearl of great value that he, he sacrifices everything to purchase. That is the love that he has for us. And he bought us by the price of his blood and his death. That is the love that he has for us. It's in light of that that we then imitate people who are like Christ. And why we imitate Christ himself. Because of his great love for us. And then we can become people who are truly worthy to be imitated. Because we love and value other people and we'll seek their good above our own. Alright, so some practical takeaways. First of all, we have to be careful in what we just kind of naturally imitate. The things that we watch, the people that we follow. Because that may not be very like, conscious, but it happens. So who are you following? Where do you find yourself kind of accidentally worshiping? Because everything you do is an act of worship. Everything you do is an imitation. And so we can be tempted to imitate the world without even knowing it. All right, next up. Find someone to imitate. Or pursue someone. No, no, I'll stick with it. Find someone to imitate. Ask someone. Reach out to someone. Like, actually reach out and ask them. That's hard to do. That's hard to do. But we're called to take active steps towards that. And so finally, I charge you, go forth and imitate Christ and imitate Paul. Knowing that you are loved, that in imitating Christ... You won't be hung out to dry. Go forth and, and don't follow the world. Instead, bring the gospel of the kingdom of God to this world. The beauty of evangelism. And in the love and glory of Christ, 
kind of be someone who is worth imitating. That the world may know Christ better. And that you may actually love and know Christ more. Let's pray. Father, as we think of the, the call to imitate Paul, um, we are daunted and we are overwhelmed. But Father, we hope that we would be overwhelmed even more by the love of Jesus Christ. By his willingness to, um, to purchase us, to call us his beloved, his crown, his joy. Father, would that give us confidence that as we imitate those who imitate Christ, we would not be abandoned, but that we would be loved and cared for. Father, thank you for imitating us in our humility and calling us to imitate you in your glory. Father, fill us and let us see the love that you have for us. We pray in Christ's name.